Well, it's good to be back with you again this afternoon and uh, to share God's word with you. Um, we have an outline that some of you may not have gotten, so maybe if you haven't gotten an outline, which also has uh, some catechism, questions and answers in the back, there's some ushers passing those out. If you'll raise your hand, people will give you that outline. I think it'd be good um, for everybody to have the same thing. So some things I'll skip over maybe quickly, and if you have the outline, you'll be following, some of you will see it, and if you don't have an outline, you'll wonder what's going on maybe. Um, I wanted maybe while those are being passed out, I'll say a couple other things. Um, uh, one is that um, next Lord's Day uh, during the Sunday school hour at 9.30, I'll be sharing what's going on in the front range churches of Colorado and Wyoming in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Um, and I can explain to you, if you come to the Sunday school next week, what front range means, uh, if you don't know what that term is. But anyways, it, I think it'll be a good educational thing for if you don't know much about the Reformed Presbyterian Church, if you know a lot about it, to get caught up on what's going on in the churches along the Rocky Mountains out there. So that'll be at 9.30, and I have some slides prepared and so forth. Uh, I guess the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, it's really hard for a, a pastor to preach after lunch to sort of a sleepy audience, and uh, I realized when I saw there's, there were two tables of food down there that this is going to be really difficult. <laughs> okay, hopefully people have... Uh, uh, outline now, and uh, let's turn in our Bibles uh, this afternoon to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we'll start at verse 20 and read through verse 36. John 12, verse 20 through 36. John chapter 12, verse 20, and again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but, this, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, 
This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. In this passage that we've read, Jesus is nearing the time of his crucifixion and death and his resurrection uh, to follow. He's come to Jerusalem as he's at the Passover, and some of the God-fearing Greeks who were at the Passover feast in Jerusalem came to Philip and said uh, these words that we find in the passage Uh, Verse 21, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip seems a little uncertain what to do with this, so he goes and speaks to Andrew, and then the two of them go and tell Jesus that these Greeks who aren't Jews want to speak with Jesus. And it doesn't tell us in um, in the account, but we assume Jesus gave these Greeks an audience and that he... He talked with them and answered questions and whatever they wanted to talk about. But Jesus uses this incident, and John records this incident, to speak about uh, his glorification, about Jesus' glorification. And it's interesting, when we think of his glorification, we think of his resurrection and ascension, and certainly that's what all this was leading to, uh, the things that were going to happen to his, his death and his resurrection. But in the passage, he basically is saying, this is my time to be glorified. And he goes so far as to say, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And when I'm lifted up for all to see, you might say, all people are going to be drawn to me. Not every single person, but people from all over the world are going to be drawn to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened. So it's interesting that this desire of a few Greeks to see Jesus, and Jesus mostly ministered to the Jewish people while he was on earth, that this desire... Uh, led Jesus to speak uh, of the great gospel ingathering of people which was just over the horizon that would come after his death and resurrection and ascension that we read about in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is not just the savior of one group of people, but he's savior of the nations, as we were reminded in this morning's uh, sermon and passages. Savior of the world, savior of all who come to faith and repentance. Those are the requirements, repent and believe. And he's such a savior, such a savior on the basis of fulfilling three great offices of which the Bible speaks. So so this afternoon, in answer to the Greeks' desire, we wish to see Jesus, I want to present Jesus to you, and I want to do that in terms of his three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And I hope that 
whether you're young or whether you're old, you want to see Jesus not, not just physically or something like that. He's, he's not living on earth now in a physical form, but that you want to be reminded of who Jesus is, that you want to be uh, even further educated in who Jesus is, that you want to live for this Jesus who said that he had to fall as a grain into the ground in order to produce fruit. And he says anybody who wants to be his disciple has to be willing to give up his life and follow Jesus, that he asked the same followers, asked of, the same, of his followers the same thing that he did. Not that every one of us is going to die or die on a cross for the sake of Christ, uh, but all of us are called to give our lives, even to the point of death, for Jesus. So let me start with some introduction uh, to this idea of prophet, priest, and king, and then we're going to think about Jesus as each one of these uh, officers or officer, offices. Uh, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was blessed uh, with three types of leaders, right? There were prophets, there were kings, and there were, there were priests, and there were a lot of them over Israel's history. And this is not just an interesting accident of history. Oh, the Israelites had these kinds of officers, so that's what's recorded in the Bible. No, these offices were particularly ordained of God. And they were ordained of God uh, in a big part to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't just read the Old Testament and say, prophet, priest, uh, so what, you know, but no, these are of God, and they represent uh, in figure what Jesus has done for us. <clears throat> the, Messiah, the word Messiah in Hebrew, of course, means the anointed one. So they were looking forward to the Messiah, the, the anointed one, and their prophets were anointed, and their priests were anointed with oil, symbolizing God's commission of, them, of the person to the office and also signifying the Holy Spirit's coming upon the person. The prophets, the priests, and kings were all anointed in those ways. Not that every time we come across a prophet, we hear about his anointing, but hearing about anointings of prophets and of priests and of kings, we recognize that that was the typical way they were appointed to their office. And so uh, they were messianic. They were anointed. Jesus is the Messiah. Of the many prophets, uh, priests, and kings... Uh, who do you think of when you think of the most famous prophet, priest, or king? <laughs> prophet uh, Moses, or you might think of Elijah or somebody like that, but Moses was the first prophet. He says, there'll be a prophet like me that'll come, and there'll be many prophets like me. Priest Aaron was the first and probably the most known one. And uh, king David, of course. David would be the king that we think of. And these, uh, these good prophets, priests, and kings, not perfect, but good ones, uh, these famous ones, they, looked, they were somebody that made us look forward to the perfect one who was coming. None of them were perfect, and there were lots of infamous prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. But all of them uh, were uh, figurative uh, of the great one, the perfect one to come, who would be the son of God, the son of man, the inaugurator of the new covenant, the founder and finisher of, of our faith, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. 
Well, a couple more things by way of introduction. This understanding of, uh, of Jesus' work as being that of the prophet, priest, and king is something that was especially uh, emphasized or rediscovered in the time of the Reformation, very much em- emphasized there. Um, it'd, be, it'd be interesting, I won't do this, but just to you know, say how many of you uh, ever heard of this doctrine of Christ, prophet, peace, and king Maybe, maybe I'd say before you came to the Reformed Presbyterian Church, that, that would be an interesting uh, survey to do because in general, I'm not sure it's that well taught or that much taught in uh, modern Christianity today. Uh, as I say, it was prominent in the Reformation and uh, it was uh, in our confessions, the Westminster Confession and the shorter catechism, the larger catechism, it was set down very clearly you have on the back of that outline, if you'll turn it over for a minute, the Westminster Shorter Catechism's um, answers and question, questions and answers. Uh, in chap- chapter 8 of the Confession says, this is not on your page, chapter 8, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession says, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, and then it goes on. So the confession ties that right in as it begins to describe who Jesus is. Uh, the Westminster Shorter, Larger Catechism has uh, four or five questions and answers. What I've given you is the Shorter Catechism, and I'm not going to read it. Uh, if you, at points you may be looking back at that, and that's fine during the sermon. Um, I'll, I'll be covering it in a different way or a different um, order, maybe some of the things it says here about Christ as our Redeemer, as prophet, priest, and king. But these are such great short statements and summaries of this doctrine that they're well worth your reading and thinking about and looking up the, the passages. But one of the points I want to make in this is that this truth uh, is something I think is, has been largely forgotten in our modern churches. And not too long ago, uh, my wife and I were listening to a CD of uh, uh, music uh, from Christian songs from the rural American past. And I was really surprised that one of these songs from, you know, country Christianity, and I don't know the date or anything of when it was, but in, in times gone by, there was a, a song about Christ being prophet, priest, and king. And it said to me, wow, you know, even out in places far away from educational institutions, this was an understanding in at least many churches and in the minds of many Christian people. And it was really that we, maybe in our modern and highly educated society, like many other things, have, have lost knowledge of it. So hopefully you've, you know a good bit about this doctrine, but, and maybe it's a refresher for most of you, but I hope it will be a, a, a time of spiritual encouragement as we uh, think about this doctrine. So let's start with uh, Jesus Christ is a prophet. And here's just a bit of scriptural evidence for that uh, statement. And and we could say that the Old Testament by by types and by prophecy predicted that that the coming Messiah would be a prophet, priest, and king. And then when Jesus was on earth, we have a lot of record in the gospels and so forth that show us that he basically assumed that role and identified with that and told people that. 
You might say, well, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? He didn't answer him directly, but he said, you said so. <laughs> and so he really did acknowledge all three of these offices. And then the apostles writing in the epistles afterwards, the apostles writing in the epistles, uh, talked about these ideas also, particularly in Hebrews, but throughout. In other words, the Old Testament predicted it by type and prophecy. Christ affirmed it, and the apostles uh, promoted it to, the, to remember in the church. So Luke seven sixteen, uh, after Jesus had raised a man from the dead, the, great, the people said, a great prophet has risen among us. Uh, the men walking on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus had risen from the dead and was walking with them, uh, they spoke uh, to him, you know, have you not heard of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people? So we could pick many other passages, but then in Acts 3.22, Peter speaking uh, after healing a man in the temple in his sermon he refers to what Moses had said. He said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me among your brother, brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's what Moses said. Peter quoted it, and then he very much identifies Jesus as this prophet that Moses was, of, of whom Moses was speaking. How is Jesus a prophet? How is Jesus a prophet? He came from God. He was God's messenger. He was God's ambassador. So he came from God. He spoke the word of God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us by his son. In doing so, in speaking for God, Jesus showed us the way of salvation. The catechism particularly speaks about the, him being the prophet who shows us the way of salvation. I mean, all the prophets pointed us to the way of salvation. But we might say Jesus, as you think about his ministry on earth, he enlarged what the Old Testament said. He expanded on it. He explained how he was the fulfillment of it. And if you think about Jesus' ministry there on earth as a prophet, uh, for a time, everybody was impressed with it, weren't they? And, except the people were really against him. But the, the crowds, as it says, heard him gladly. And that's always struck me uh, that Jesus, at least in those early days of ministry, people loved to come and hear him speak. And they, they wasn't just that he told interesting stories, although he did do that. Uh, and it wasn't that he had some great philosophy. It was just that he spoke with God's authority. Uh, he spoke as one who was speaking for God very clearly and knew what he was talking about. Um, he, he spoke with wisdom and with truth. And he was teaching them, this is how you come to God. This is how you're saved. You, you go to the Old Testament, you Pharisees, and uh, you you don't realize that they're speaking of me, Jesus said, and you won't come to me that you might have life. Jesus spoke life. Uh, John says uh, that the law came by Moses, uh, truth and grace came by Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty similar to kindness and truth, by the way. Jesus brought to life grace and truth. He brought the Father's 
grace and truth to earth. So, so Jesus uh, did all these things. And since Jesus is our prophet from God, we can count on what he says. You know, if you, if you have friends who are not believers or if you yourself struggle sometimes with doubts, think about how this Jesus clearly fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus, if it's not Jesus, who is it that's the Messiah that's going to come? And he spoke with such power and such wisdom, and what he told us was the truth. And he explained how we can come back into a relationship with God. So listen to what Jesus says. He's God's prophet. Uh, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament uh, spoke boldly for God, and, and people got angry at him and, and killed some of them, threw some in prison. They wouldn't listen to him. You know, a lot, most, most of the time, you'd say the majority of the time, the people of God did not listen to God's prophets. And, and, and that's what happened with Jesus as well. But listen to Jesus. Believe what he says. Trust him. But as I say, uh, we can say one more way that Jesus was like a prophet is that he was persecuted. He was rejected and he was finally put to death. So those are the ways, uh, at least the main ways, um, that Jesus was a prophet. But it's interesting that by receiving that rejection of man and having them uh, put him to death and Satan being behind this all, our, show, our Savior showed us that he was more than just a prophet and he entered his priestly work. He, he, he was prophet, priest, and king of the catechism says in both his humiliation and exaltation, and that's true, but there is somewhat of a progression in the life of Jesus, if you think about it, quite a progression. He comes as a prophet, and then he's killed, rejected as a prophet, but his death is where he does, in such a great way, his priestly work. So there's, there's a kind of a progression, isn't there? Prophet, priest, and king. So Christ, our Savior, is also our priest. Uh, what about scriptures for that? Again, there could be many, but the key passage probably about Jesus being a, a priest, moving on to the uh, second part of our outline, is Psalm 110, uh, verse 4. The Lord, the Lord God has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, spoken in Psalm 110. And the book of Hebrews takes its cue from, from that verse, from that psalm. Hebrews 3.1 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest, high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And again, Hebrews 4.14 states, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And the book of Hebrews then develops the ways in which Jesus is a high priest. Uh, he was human as we are and as all priests must be. What a wonderful thing. He offered a sacrifice for sin, not an animal, but in this case, he offered himself. He entered into God's presence with his own blood and became mediator between God and human beings, 1 Timothy 2.15. And he intercedes for us in prayer before God. This is how Jesus is our high priest, particularly offering a sacrifice and particularly interceding for us. But you can really see in uh, Jesus' life and what is described 
in the book of Hebrews, you can see the work of a high priest bringing a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice, taking the blood and going behind the curtain, uh, sprinkling the blood, taking incense in, uh, and Jesus uh, dying on the cross as the sacrifice, his, his blood being shed, him going behind the curtain and the curtain being torn open that we have access to God. And in the priest's case, the priest going in, is he going to die or not? And he comes back out. So Christ comes back out, the living Savior. So there's, so there's a lot there that uh, can be seen. But the key things, he's human and he's God, of course. He offered a perfect sacrifice. He entered God's presence for us with blood and uh, becoming our mediator, both God and man. And he intercedes for us in prayer. It's because... Uh, Jesus is a prophet that we need to listen to him. It's because he's a priest that we are reconciled to God and have peace with God. Our elder prayed and confessed our sins tonight, this afternoon. But he also reminded us of our freedom and our salvation in Christ that we should rejoice in. And both are important for us as Christians to always be ready to confess and admit our sin, but also to have the joy of the Lord that our sins have been covered, our sins have been forgiven. And even when we sin today, God forgives us for the sake of Christ. And so it's because of Jesus being a priest that we have that relationship with God that you and I now have, that we can communicate with God in prayer and that God hears our prayers because Jesus intercedes for us there in heaven. The curtain is torn apart. You, as a Christian, you and I have fellowship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, because of his perfect life and his death for us. And we want to serve him and live for him because of that. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You ever think of that as... A, a way that you should think about witnessing. We, we, want, we will proclaim Christ so that you too can have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's who we are as Christians. We have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus Christ. Our third and final point this morning, this afternoon, is our Savior, Jesus Christ, is a king. Evidence? Acts 2, 6 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Revelation 17, 14 states, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Lord of lords and King of kings. And let me just read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Is Jesus king now? Yes. Is he king of nations? Is he king of churches? Is he king of individuals? Yes, he is. But we don't see all things put under his feet. We're going to see the day when death is completely destroyed and, and all things are clearly put under his feet. And so even though we acknowledge very uh, strongly that Christ is Lord and king now, and the scriptures teach that, again, you see somewhat of a progression He's prophet speaking, he's priest dying and rising again, and he's king ruling over all now, and, and his rule will be more clearly seen at the end of time. 
Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has, what's a diadem, young people? Probably a crown, it's on his head. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike the nations, and he will rule them with an rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, the God, of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation nineteen sixteen. How is Jesus king? He's been given this office by God. God called him and appointed him to be king, and that would be true of all the offices. But remember, God appointed him as king. He conquers our wills. When a person becomes a Christian, a significant part of what happens is that your thoughts and your actions and, are, and your words become submitted to Jesus Christ. Did that happen to you when you became a Christian? Not completely submitted. Sometimes when when God really gets a hold of us, uh, it's such a change that it's almost like, yes, everything, you know, I, I want to think God's thoughts, I want to speak God's words, I want to act for God. And then a lot of ups and downs come in life along the way. But in the beginning, that's part of why those things happen is because Christ conquers your will. You were fighting against Christ, maybe strongly or maybe not so clearly, uh, but Christ conquered you and you submitted your will to Jesus Christ. And after he conquered, and the Bible says, your people will offer themselves willingly on the day of your power. Don't be like... uh, If you're not a Christian, don't be like those people who said, we won't have this man rule over us. In one of Jesus' parables, he said that there were people who were saying, we don't want him to rule over us. Don't be like that. Be one who submits to Christ's rule. Become a follower of Jesus Christ. And once he conquers us, he rules over us. But it's a gracious, loving rule. He conducts it inwardly through his word and spirit and outwardly through the administration of the church and our fellowship with other Christians. Even as Christians, we must still learn to obey and not be like stubborn animals, Psalm 32, 9. But remember, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, Matthew eleven thirty. Like a father guiding his children, so God directs us through Christ. And then lastly, Jesus conquers all his and our enemies. Once we're on his side, we find him Uh, conquering our enemies and ultimately his enemies. And sometimes that conquering is changing people from being persecuted, other people from being persecutors of Christ to coming to faith in Christ. Sometimes it's protecting us by his angels when we don't even realize he's protected us. But so Jesus conquers our wills, Jesus rules over us, and he conquers all his and our enemies. So because he's a prophet, we need to listen to him. Because he's a priest, we love him and we want to serve him. And because 
He's, he's a king. You and I have nothing to fear. Why should I fear what man can do to me? Why should I fear what might happen tomorrow at work? Why should I fear what happened to my family? Why should I fear to speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ? I fear God, not man. That's what we can all say. What a wonderful doctrine of scripture this is then. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament tells us about prophets, priests, and kings. He shows us the way. He makes peace for us with God, and he rules over us for our good. He's everything we could ask for in a savior. He is compelling. Christ is compelling in his offices. That's why this isn't just a old-fashioned doctrine or something like that. That's why scripture teaches this, and that's why we need to affirm it as who Jesus is. He's compelling in his offices. His voice calls us to faith and repentance. His sacrificial service inspires us. His glorious kingship draws us to him. As the scriptures say, fairer than all the sons of men you are. He's a prophet, hear him. He's a priest, thank him. He's a king, serve him. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, and we're so thankful for your Word, which in a wonderful way anticipated his coming as the Messiah, the Anointed One. Lord, we thank you that these doctrines are developed in the Scriptures in such a way that we can understand them and we could really spend a time on many, we could spend many sermons on a lot of these points. Lord, we pray that every, every one of us uh, might be drawn to you because of our need for a Savior and because of this compelling nature of the Savior that you've given us. We pray for all of our children here, Lord, that they might uh, see, have seen Jesus today, maybe in a new way, and that all of us might be encouraged in our uh, walk with him. We pray that we might not be ones who... Uh, need a bit and a bridle to control us, Lord, but that you will continue to teach us and guide us by your word. Bless us in our marriages, in our families, our obedience to our parents, Lord, in our service in the church, in our relationships with one another. Uh, Give us strength to live the way that you call us to live. Forgive us for our sins, and thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing Psalm 86b. Eighty-sixb says, begins, Your way teach me, Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart, your name to fear. Sometimes we feel like our hearts are divided a bit between the world and, uh, and the Christian walk. And so it's a good prayer to pray after a sermon. Your way, teach me, Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart, your name, to fear. We'll sing 86B and then have the benediction and the uh, doxology is 3B afterwards. And then we'll be seated following for a time of sharing and prayer. Let's stand to sing now.